Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the War of the Ring. It has been a long fortnight since last we met, uh, and uh, we left, as I recalled, right at the big reveal uh, of who it was that uh, was in cahoots with Gollum uh, for the betrayal of Frodo and Sam, which is pretty cool. Um, So, okay, oh, yes. (laughs) Thank you to those of you who are expressing concern about my well-being. Uh, yeah, for those of you who didn't see Exploring the Lord of the Rings last night. So I kind of I, I pulled, I had one of those uh, sort of embarrassing, you're not a teenager anymore moments. Um, I pulled a muscle in my back and like last night during class, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was done about half an hour before class started last night. So... Uh, I was I was so like stiff and contorted I couldn't move and I could barely lift my arm to put uh, hit buttons on the screen and stuff. It was a little embarrassing, um, but I'm much better now. Look, I can raise my hand and everything. I, I can gesticulate like normal. So uh, it's still not totally better. Uh, still not a teenager, it turns out, but uh, much better than last night. So definitely, uh, definitely moving in the right direction. Yana, um, something definitely happened on the homeward flight. I don't know where it was, whether it was a, uh, it was a, 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 you know, reaching suitcases down moment or what, but it was definitely something related to the transatlantic flight, but whatever. Um, it's, uh, it's all, it's all good. Uh, I aggravated it last night, uh, in karate class. So that was kind of my own fault, but it's all good. Um, so, uh, so yes, but thank you. I am I'm 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 not perfectly well, but still very much better than I was last night. So thanks for that. And so yes, uh, Stephen, that does mean that it's 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 okay. It's a little more okay. It still might hurt a little bit if I laugh too much. But last night we were we were I was forbidding anybody to make funny jokes because it hurt so much to laugh. Uh, but it's it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, we should be we should be good. Um, so. Uh, so uh, for those of you who were not able to be at London Moot, London Moot was awesome this past weekend. We had such a great time. Uh, so many thanks to uh, to Darren Gray for what a wonderful job he did organizing the event uh, and for... Um, uh, of course, all the extra work that he did in showing us around London on Monday. I had a wonderful time. We went to the went to the British Museum. We went to the Charles Dickens Museum, which I'd never uh, been to before. It was really, really neat to see the desk on which Charles Dickens wrote Tale of Two Cities, which is my favorite of his novels. Uh, I really like uh, Charles Dickens. And... Um, anyway, so it was, uh, uh, it was super good. We went and saw Hamlet at the Globe. Um, which I suppose there's a non-zero chance that sitting on the wooden benches at the Globe might have had something to do with my back, too. But anyway, it was all fun. It was so much fun. Uh, one of the best productions of Hamlet I've seen. It was a really, really great show. Um, so, um, anyhow, so it was, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful time. And the conference itself was amazing. The presentations were so good. Uh, it, was, uh, it, was just, it was just a great, great day. So, uh, and so great to be able to meet some of you. Um, and uh, looking forward to doing that again as soon as we can. I am uh, definitely excited to have uh, our, you know, our European gathering be an annual thing, and we'll see what the plans are as we, um, uh, as we, as we develop there. So anyway, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Uh, I'm looking forward to next time already. So, uh, but speaking of next things, just to uh, draw your attention to the next things on our list of, um, 
uh, on our list of events coming up. Of course, the next big thing is Mythmoot now. We are uh, beginning f- to fast approach June. Uh, and our schedule, I keep being tempted to say our final schedule, but of course it is nothing like final, uh, as uh, there are always changes and adjustments to be made on the fly as we get closer and closer to the event. Um, but our schedule for uh, the presentations and all the things that are happening um, is being released now. It is, uh, uh, it is very, um, um, uh, it is uh, uh, in, in final preparation and distribution right now. So uh, in fact, I think it's been posted on Facebook already and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's making the rounds. Uh, so keep your eyes out for that. Um, definitely time. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you totally should. Mythmoot is going to be uh, awesome. Uh, I, I can't, I just, oh man. Mythmoot is the best time of the whole year. Uh, so I hope that uh, many of you can make it this year. Um, after that, our next, our parade of regional moots continues, uh, with another new region that we are reaching in August, uh, and that is the San Francisco Bay Area. So Northern Californians, we are going to have Bay Moot on August 18th. Um, so you can, uh, find information on that on the, uh, the, the signumuniversity.org website. Uh, there's an event page up for Bay Moot where the registration details and everything, uh, are there already and everything. So, uh, so Baymoot, we've got Mythmoot in June, Baymoot in August, and uh, and then we're gonna be we're gonna be moving on from there. So, uh, so yeah, Patricia, so looking forward to seeing you at Baymoot. I know that you're up in that area there. That'll be fun. Um, okay, so. Um, and our uh, summer uh, courses start as well. Our summer semester at Signum begins next week. Uh, so we're, we're in the final preparations for that. If you've been thinking about uh, maybe joining us for a discussion audit uh, or something for one of our courses, or even if you've been considering applying to the program, um, you can still sneak in. Uh, there's still there's still time. We process things pretty quickly, so we should be able to get you in if you wanted to join. Now there's still time, but not much time. So uh, if you were thinking about uh, joining us for those courses, you should totally um, you should totally get on that. So all right. Um, but anyway, let us get back to Kirathungal. And by the way, let me just say. I'm hoping to get through and finish Kirathungal tonight. I know that's going to put us a week behind, but it's fine. We'll catch up. Uh, not worried. But Kirathungal, this is a big deal, right? And this is a really fun moment to see Tolkien working out this stuff. And it's, uh, you know, I don't know which is sort of more cool, right? In some ways, this kind of a chapter is more cool. That is, I'm thinking of, think of two classic chapters from the Lord of the Rings, right? Think about the Treebeard chapter in the Two Towers. And you think about the, the, the well, really, this is like three chapters, right, at the end. Uh, the, you know, the Stairs of Carathongol and the, uh, and Shelob's Lair and then the Choices of Master Samwise. Um, but from a, a process point of view, they're completely opposite. Right, um, the Treebeard chapter appears in its f- almost in its final draft the very first time through. Right, as soon as uh, he gets to Treebeard and realizes that Treebeard is not a normal giant, but is in fact something else. Right, that he is an Ent, and that that means something quite different than anything he has ever. Uh, um, 
uh, he has ever uh, he had ever imagined before he got there. Uh, as soon as he realizes that the Treebeard chapter just unfolds and there's there's practically no drafting. I mean, you remember how short that chapter was um, in the Treason of Isengard because there's nothing to talk about. It's like and then he wrote it pretty much as is, right? And uh, pretty much as it was published. Whereas the Kirith Ungold chapter is very long and very complex, and we can see Tolkien really laboring, right? He calls it. Uh, he calls it a sticky patch that he was trying to work through. And by the way, I really love the parallel there, right? How uh, he, you know, Tolkien, that by using the word sticky, uh, uh, Tolkien has kind of implicitly paralleled himself with Frodo. Um, you know, as uh, uh, you know, really with with Frodo and Sam, just as Frodo and Sam are are are, are trapped in a tight, dark place uh, by the webbing. Uh, you know, so uh, Tolkien himself has been, you know, sort of stuck in this spot and trying to trying to work it out. Um, but the um, the 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 details, right? We see him laboring over things here, um, and it's not just to some extent it's mechanics, right? To some extent, we see this is him reworking the geography. We were talking a little bit last time about how he was, um, you know, he started off with the concept of you know stair number one tunnel, and then stair number two in the pass up on top, um, and part of sort of fixing some of the problems and working through some of the logistical difficulties um, was shifting the tunnel to the top. So we get stair, stair, tunnel instead of stair, tunnel, stair. Um, So, you know, we see him adjusting things like that. The whole, the, the interesting thing is that the fundamental concept remains more or less the same all the way through, right? You know, the betrayal of Gollum in conjunction with giant spider giant spiders or giant spider, right? Um, and uh, I mean, there are some there are some significant changes, of course, um, but the the overall and then Frodo getting captured and taken off by the orcs, like that's that's consistent from the beginning. But how that happens and the details of how that works and the way he comes to discover, this is a voyage of discovery just like the rest of it, right? You know, he discovers Treebeard and things unfold before him as he discovers Treebeard. He's discovering stuff here, but it's like he's in the dark and can't see very far ahead of him, right? Uh, He can only see like half a step in front of him and he keeps having to figure out, okay, hang on, like... Who's holding the file and who's holding Sting and and uh, and you know a lot of it is due to him just kind of working out the logic of events. Um, so again, we see him laboring much much more uh, in this passage, and that is you know brings its own real interest in beginning to see how is it that he works through things because we don't learn anything really when we see. I mean, apart from learning which passages just came really easily, which is interesting in itself, right? I mean, that's really fun to know that the Treebeard chapter just practically wrote itself. Um, but it doesn't, we don't, we didn't really learn too much about the Treebeard chapter, right? Apart from that one simple fact. Whereas here, I think we learn a lot more about Shelob and the way that he's, the way that he's thinking about things. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Kate, what he's doing with Sam, right? The Sam issue as that unfolds, uh, you know, we see him, uh, what Sam will do, what happens to Sam and what Sam will do in response, sort of slowly coming into focus. We see him 
working out basic things about, so the towers, how do they coordinate? How do the bad guys talk to each other? Um, what's their plan? What are they thinking? How are they connected with the spiders, right? Um, all of those things, which were very vague at the beginning. I mean, you'll recall the very first time we got Kirithungal, it was the main pass, right? It was Kirith, It was what was later called Kirith Gorgor, right? It's the main pass into Mordor, and it was chock full of giant spiders, bigger than the giant spiders of Mirkwood, um, which raised as soon as you begin to think about it, to sort of apply that in general kind of world building terms, right, begs the question, uh, what exactly is the relationship between the orcs and these giant spiders? Can the armies of Sauron get in and out? Do the spiders just hide? Uh, or are they coordinated? Like, do they communicate with Sauron? Does he, does he give the green light to people? Is there a password? I mean, how does it work, right? Um, how are those things connected? But that was never really resolved, right? Because uh, at first it was just part of the sketchy outline. Um, he wants a pass. He wants the pass to be full of spiders. He wants the spiders to coordinate with Gollum and for that to be the, the spiders in the past to be the instrument of betrayal um, by Gollum. That's, that's, and to lead to the capture of the orcs. Again, that concept is there absolutely um, from, uh, uh, from the beginning. But it... Um, uh, but again, we see him beginning to work this stuff out. And those are some of my favorite parts of this passage where we see him not doing what we've seen before, which is outlining and having the outline turn into prose, right? Turn into dialogue and into prose. In this chapter, what we see is the other way around, right? We see him starting to write like he knows what he's going to do, right? But then his prose story becomes outline. Right. Becomes brainstorming as he's getting to this point and realizing either changing his mind about what he was already in the middle of writing or we see him beginning to kind of like things are emerging in dialogue. I think we can see this really happening with the orcs. Right. When the orcs are talking, um, as soon as he starts over, as Sam starts overhearing the orcs, all of a sudden Tolkien is finding himself figuring out all this stuff about how the orcs work and how, uh, you know, the, the sort of the communications of the bad guys and all that kind of thing. Um, anyway, so we'll get to this stuff, but I think that this is, this is well worth lingering on for a little bit, even at risk of getting behind, but we'll see if I can catch up again later on. But first, let's see if we can actually finish this chapter tonight. So, all right, let's move forward, move boldly into the sticky patch, or rather back into the sticky patch, because we ended right at the big reveal that having made the decision to shift from bunch of giant spiders to one single monstrous spider guarding the pass, he identifies the spider with Ungoliant, right? Um, and it's Gollum who reveals this when he cap- when he nabs Sam, right, in his sort of final act of betrayal to hold Sam. Um, at last, my precious one, we've got him. Yes, the nasty hobbit. We takes this one. She'll get the other. Oh, yes, Ungoliant will get him, not Smeagol. He won't hurt Master, not at all, he promised. But he's got you, you nasty, dirty little thing. Uh, and of course, as we were pointing out last time, he doesn't uh, call him a sneak, right, because that sneak scene isn't in there yet. Um, and I was arguing last time, and I am way more than ever convinced that uh, this is not recycling. This is meant to be Ungoliant herself, that his impulse upon saying there's a giant spider, a singular, solitary, important giant spider, um, was that 
this is in fact going to be the very same Ungoliant who uh, killed the trees in Valinor. Uh, now you might ask, how on earth could Sam Gamgee, uh, you know, chase off the spider who, you know, uh, who more who almost killed Morgoth, right? Um, you know, who might have killed Morgoth had not uh, 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 the Balrogs come and rescued him. It, it doesn't that seem a little bit you know, much. I mean, even even the most hardcore Sam fans might really wonder if Sam, if that, you know, it's a bit of a tall order for Sam Gamgee, you might say, right? Um, and uh, I think it's pretty clear what Tolkien has in mind, which is that Ungoliant is diminishing, right? Ungoliant has shrunk. Um, this is, I mean, she's still terrifying enough, certainly, um, but she's not, she's not what she, remember there's a reason why Morgoth was afraid of her right there was a reason why uh, uh, she was ready to take Morgoth out um, and that's because she had just eaten the trees right she had just consumed all the light of the two trees of Valinor and swollen to monstrous size um, she had just had the best meal she was ever going to have in her entire life um, and was at the absolute acme of her power at that point. She is now in starvation mode, right? Um, and I think it's actually really interesting to think about the, the this glimpse that we get, right, of Ungoliant. So Ungoliant herself, we never know what comes of Ungoliant, right? Nobody ever says anything. I mean, we have some hints, but we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But... Um, but there was, you know, the the story that we never get a narrative, written prose narrative um, of the end of Ungoliant, right? So she just kind of fades out and and starves um, eventually. Uh, or, as the Silmarillion suggests, at last eats up, uh, or as devours herself. Um, so what do we see here? We see her starved for light because she's living in the mountains of shadow, right? And... I think that the way that this works really kind of captures very well the way in which, you know, evil becomes enslaved to itself, right? And how evil is this sort of, uh, is always this self-defeating thing. Ungoliant has always been one of my favorite illustrations for the nature of evil in Tolkien, um, especially the way, the, the fate that is attributed to her in the Silmarillion, right? Um, evil is always self-destructive. That's always the case. We see every single evil character uh, that we see ends up bringing about their own destruction, ultimately, uh, through uh, directly or indirectly, uh, through their through their evil choices. Um but uh, but see, Arthur, exactly the, the 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 issue there is not just that she made a poor real estate choice, right? Um, uh, you know, a light eating creature taking up its residence in the mountains of shadow, right? May, m- might perhaps have perhaps done more. Uh, have done more research, or as Arthur suggested, get a b- better realtor. But um, but no, that's the whole point, right? Even if she found like the the even if she found the glittering caves right and took up her residence there, she would soon turn them into the mountains of shadow, um, which would lead to her own starvation. Ultimately, you know, she she destroys that which sustains her. That's the nature of evil, right? Um, so the idea that we get a glimpse here of Ungoliant 
in her latter stages, you know, famished, desperate, diminished, ancient, evil, um, terrifying, and yet shrunken, um, is actually, I kind of love it from an uh, objective standpoint. I mean, and if you, um, um, if you know, uh, um, if you know anything, of course, about the Silmarillion tradition, the idea that this is Ungoliant herself, even shrunken, you know, even reduced by time, um, is uh, is is remarkably terrifying. Um, and James, yes, I would I would suspect that she helped cause the shadow whereby the mountains got the name. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, yeah. Uh, so this is, but it's still wild, right? The idea that, uh, that this was originally not the daughter of Ungoliant, but Ungoliant herself is really kind of crazy. And we see he maintains this through several drafts. This is not a passing whim. This is not a placeholder. Um, and it's not a borrowing. This is literally Ungoliant. And he sticks with that name for a long time. We'll finally, we'll finally get around to Shelob uh, by the end of this chapter, um, but it's going to be Ungoliant most of the time. Um, so, all right, so let's, uh, let's move forward now. Wait, hang on, did I just skip one? No, I did not. Okay. All right. Many words and even whole sentences are totally illegible, but enough can be made out to see that in, in this earliest form of the story, it was Sam's slash with sting across Ungoliant's belly that caused her to leap back. There is no suggestion of the great wound she suffered when she drove her whole bulk down onto the point of the sword. When she sprang back, Sam stood reeling, his legs astride his master, but she a few paces off eyed him, and the green venom that was her blood slowly suffused the pale light of her eyes. Sting held before him, Sam now something, and ere she attacked again, he found his master's hand in his bosom. It was cold and limp, and quickly but gently he took it, he took from it the glass of Galadriel, and held it up. Um, Okay. One of the main points that I want to make here, again, first of all, notice how um, in in thinking about Ungoliant and thinking about the self-destructive patterns of evil, notice, of course, how eventually he is going to come back uh, to that uh, to that uh, that same trope with Shelob. Right. The bit that isn't there yet about her thrusting herself down upon the bitter spike. Like, he could not have possibly destroyed her. It was her own malice that drives her down upon the sword and gives her her near-death wound, right? Um, later on, when she's Shelob. Again, same pattern, right? Um, but we see her not uh, her not doing this yet. Uh, a couple things. Yeah, Frodo... Or, Frodo. Arthur, I just called you Frodo. Um... Uh, Arthur, the business with the, the Frodo's hand is a little hard to follow. I stumbled over it. I mean, as you hear when I was reading it, right? I'm like, uh, it does sound like he found like Frodo's hand has suddenly somehow ended up in Sam's bosom, which is a little bit hard to picture Frodo lying unconscious on the ground as he is, right? But no, Sam is reaching down to his master, to Frodo's bosom, and finding Frodo's hand, which is upon his own bosom, and he's taking the file out of it, right? But, of course, this is a perfect example of the kind of thing that um, 
Tolkien kept changing, right? He kept realizing it wasn't working. Um, these logistical details of this scene, who's carrying what, right? Uh, and I love the moment when he decides he's got to get rid of the staffs from Faramir because they don't have enough hands, right? We've got a sword, we've got the file, we've got the staff. He's like, how do... And then he finally solves that with the leather thongs, right? From which the uh, the, the staffs can hang on their wrists so they can still hold all the things. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, so... Um, now, ah, Yana says, isn't it weird that Ungoliant didn't go for the glass immediately, right? I mean, wasn't she, wouldn't she, wasn't she wanting to eat uh, the file of Galadriel? Well, that's interesting, Yana, uh, and we'll come back to that uh, in a minute. Um, because because the answer is apparently not. I don't think this, I, I don't believe that that's an oversight by Tolkien here. And we do see him uh, overlooking a bunch of things and then again going back and fixing them and realizing this. I don't think that that is an oversight here. Um, uh, but um, anyway, yeah. So, but, but I said we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that in a little bit. The thing I wanted to emphasize, the thing that really jumped out at me about this passage is the business about the venom. Right. Notice what Tolkien tells us about Ungoliant and the venom. Um, so, so he's slashed her, and uh, she, a few paces off, eyed him, and the green venom that was her blood slowly suffused the pale light of her eyes. Okay. So there's uh, the this the goo is dripping from the wound that Sam has slashed across her belly, right? And he says, A, her blood is venom. Like, her body circulates poison. uh, And that poison is somehow coming up and filling her eyes so that the eyes become... uh, uh, So she had a pale light in her eyes... And the green venom that was her blood slowly suffused, so her eyes turned from pale to green, to colors, of course, that we've seen with Gollum, right? Go- Gollum's eyes. This is very like Gollum's eyes. Or rather, I guess we should say Gollum's eyes are much like Ungoliant's eyes, it turns out. Um, so, Nancy, that is exactly right. Um, Nancy says, I don't think that's how spiders usually work. No, it's not how spiders usually work. Um, but that's exactly the thing that interested me. One of the things that th- lots of people over the years have wanted to nitpick Shelob because of her sting, right? She has a stinger, uh, you know, in her, in, you know, on the, at the tip of her, of her abdomen, like a bee, right? Spiders don't have stingers. It's not a thing, right? Um, and um, and a lot of people have re- really been troubled by Sheila Stinger um, because it would seem to suggest that Tolkien didn't know anything about spiders, right? Um, and that this is just like some kind of awkward mistake that Tolkien has made about the whole Stinger business, right? Um, and but several people, um, ha- uh, John Ratliff, for instance, talks about this. Uh, sort of semi-digresses onto this topic uh, in the chapter, in his commentary on the Mirkwood chapter of The Hobbit, in the history of The Hobbit. But anyway, um, 
uh, basically Tolkien kind of actually knew quite a lot about animals. And, uh, you know, there's this one, uh, uh, letter that, you know, refers to Tolkien sitting with somebody who came to his house and talking for a long time about wasps, right? Like he just knew lots of random stuff about insects and stuff. And it's, it's, you know, so basically there's been kind of two camps on the Shelob stinger thing, right? Uh, one is the people who are like, uh, Tolkien spiders don't do that. Uh, he made a mistake. Right. And others saying, yeah, but he seemed to know about this stuff. It seems like he's, he's, he, that it's not just ignorance of spider anatomy. Um, and so, you know, is she really a spider? Is she just taking, you know, sort of adapting strange spider form or, or, or whatever? Um, is it just Ariel exactly? Is this just like fantasy spider now featuring a stinger? Right. Um, I, uh, um, yeah, and of course, yeah, there is the famous story of him getting uh, uh, getting bitten or stung, as he uh, uh, said, um, by a uh, by a tarantula when he was a kid. Um, but we're talking a really little kid, uh, and that he didn't even really remember the incident very well um, uh, when he was in Bloemfontein, when he was in South Africa. But again, he traveled home to. Uh, uh, to to England, you know, where he lived the rest of his life, very early in life, he he didn't retain much of the natural history of uh, uh, of uh, of South uh, South Africa. Anyway, um, okay, so I. Uh, by the way, spiders also don't have beaks, and uh, the spiders both in the Lay of Lathian and Ungoliant in the Silmarillion clearly has a beak that she sets to the wound of the trees and sucks the sap uh, out of them. Um, uh, Anyway, so what is my point? My point is, you can argue, I think, potentially, if you wanted to argue that Shelob Stinger is just a gaffe on Tolkien's part, right? That, like, here's Tolkien... Uh, showing off uh, a sort of a comical ignorance about spider anatomy. You could make, it'd be hard to, it's hard to defeat that argument perfectly, right? I mean, it's, it's plausible. I don't know what you can totally say to dis to absolutely disprove that. But this first draft of this, this early draft of the fight with Shelob, convinces me very clearly he is not trying to be verisimilitudinous when it comes to spider anatomy, right? Um, I am... I suspect he knew full well that spiders don't have stingers. I feel quite sure that he knew that spiders don't have venom for blood and that the blood doesn't fill up their eyes from the inside when they get really mad, right? I feel really almost 100% sure that he knew that that's not how spiders work. In fact, my, the, the point is, this scene does not sound like any attempt at verisimilitude when it comes to describing spiders and their anatomy. Um, here, I think very plainly, he's describing a concept, something in spider form, but the thing that is manifesting itself in spider form is more than a spider or less than a spider or whatever. Um, it's it's a con- like the physical body of Ungoliant, and the fact that it's Ungoliant also really emphasizes this, right? Shelob, presumably at least, is like 
half spider, like her dad, whoever her poor dad was, um, uh, was probably some kind of legitimate monster in spider form, we're told. Um, so so uh, Sheila may, in fact, have some spider DNA, uh, just as Luthien has elf DNA. Um, but um, anyway, uh, I... I but exactly, Jennifer, being that most spiders don't eat light and belch forth darkness. Yeah, also not normal spider behavior. But again, I, I get so Ungolian, when it's Ungolian, all bets are off, right? No, why? No one is going to get into quibbling arguments about spider anatomy when it's Ungolian that we're talking about, right? And that's perfectly plain from this description. Um, no. Uh, anatomically, zoologically, uh, it does not make a bit of sense that her body is like stuffed full of venom, uh, which leaks out and which fills up her eyes. But sort of symbolically, metaphorically, right, as the spider manifestation of that evil spirit, which is ungoliant, right, um, it makes perfect sense, actually, right? And it works really well to think that the, ver- the very lifeblood, her very lifeblood, is, uh, um, is death. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think that it's... Um, uh, it it really makes a lot of somebody was just saying yes uh, Mike was just saying instead of her blood being life her blood is death yeah and that's cool right uh, again I love it I, I I think that 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 really works but one of the one of the things that I love about it is that it is firmly outside the realm right we are not this is not a National Geographic special about spiders right very clearly um, that is completely off the. Uh, uh, that is completely off the, the, the table, right, in this moment here. Um, and so, therefore, kind of coming from this early draft, when A, the spider is ungoliant, and B, you know, its circulatory system is based on poison, um, it's, uh, it's, it, when we then move forward to Shelob, it kind of still, to me, pushes that issue off the table, or rather, um, I don't think it absolutely disproves that Tolkien was ignorant about spiders and stings, but I think it does, for my purposes anyway, I am satisfied uh, that it proves that that's not really a question we should be asking here. Um, if we're worrying about the verisimilitude of the representation of a giant spider, we're missing the point of this passage. And of, the, and of that, I am heartily convinced. I was always kind of leaning towards that conclusion. Uh, but this passage seems to me to really make that perfectly clear. Um yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yes, and Tony, I agree with you. The and held it up there does seem to be, he seems to be reaching for that same kind of cadence, the and Morgoth came uh, 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 sort of, I was about to call it a stinger, but perhaps that's not appropriate under the circumstances. Uh, you know, that that kind of uh, 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 touch at the end, right? Um, uh, as he reaches down and gets the, oops, sorry. So I have a different system here that I'm using for my slides, uh, and I may sometimes make mistakes like that. My apologies. I hope I don't cause anyone seizures. Okay, so let's go back to Gollum's original plan here uh, as it's unfolding, uh, not just in the chapter, but of course in Tolkien's own mind as he drafts the chapter. Okay, Uh, there seem in fact to have been several interrelated questions. 
This is Christopher, of course, speaking. One was uh, this of topography, the relation of the stairs and the tunnel. We talked about that before. Another was the time and place of Gollum's disappearance. In the outline, he is found to have vanished when they come to the head of the second stair. And in the present version, he ran off with a strange whistling cry when they came to that place. Um, remember, so in that earlier version, he, the strange whistling cry seemed to be a summons. And we remember we were talking about whether he was speaking spider language. And I was theorizing that, yes, like he was, he was saying, you know, come and get him, you know, in, uh, uh, in, 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 uh, in spider language with that strange whistling cry. Okay. Another was the question of Gollum's plan and its miscarriage. My father had written, but everything had gone wrong with his beautiful plan, that is Gollum's beautiful plan, since the unexpected web in the path. Right? So you'll remember that that line is kept almost in the published text, but it's the appearance of the light, is right? It's the file of Galadriel that undoes the beautiful plan of Gollum. Right? Here, the spiders themselves, Ungoliant herself, thwarts somehow Gollum's original plan by putting up the web, which was originally at the beginning or like in the middle uh, of the tunnel in a place where Gollum himself wasn't expecting it. Um, and that was kind of funny. You know, you read the chapter and they come to the, the, the web and remember they're, they're like looking at Gollum and being all suspicious, right? Sam, of course, being very suspicious of Gollum. Um, and Gollum is like, what web? Oh, I have no idea how, what this is or how it got here, right? Um, and it sounds like he's like, you assume that he's lying, that this is part of the plan. But of course, confusingly, it turns out to be true. He, he doesn't have any idea. Uh, and uh, so... The idea that this sort of, at the very least, imperfect communication between Gollum and Ungoliant um, is part of the story in its initial concept, right? That Gollum's plan, um, or again, Gollum's kind of coordination with, with Ungoliant or Ungoliant's cooperation with Gollum's plan, whatever... Um, uh, whatever uh, um, you know, however we conceive of that. Um, that's, that's, so it's, it's interesting to me that that division, that the fact that Gollum is himself in trouble here, um, uh, potentially that things are not going according to plan is part of it from the beginning. And that's going to get dropped, right? Um, Okay. It certainly seems to be the case in this version that Gollum was very put out when they encountered it in the tunnel. We didn't expect to find this here, did we, Precious? No, of course not. And again, apparently he really meant that. And after the first webs had been cut through, Gollum was strangely reluctant to go on and kept trying to wriggle away and turn back. So Christopher's interpretation of that passage is not that he's afraid of Frodo and Sam or trying to escape so that he can let the spider spring the trap, right? Um, he is strangely reluctant to go on because what? He must think that Ungoliant is going to kill him too, right? That this is a sign that things are not panning out the way that he wanted to and that this is, uh, um, you know, and that, that, that she might end up coming after him. Um, that seems to be what we're supposed to be understanding here. Um, so it puts Gollum in, a, I think, a really interesting position here uh, at the beginning. And again, notice the same theme emerging here. 
right? Gollum in his act of treachery, his, the act of treachery by which he is going to lead Frodo and Sam to their destruction is also likely to rebound upon him uh, and lead him to destruction. And he seems to suspect that that's at least in the offing here, right? So again, once again, we see Tolkien playing uh, with that same, uh, that same theme. All right, let's keep going. Okay. He decides firmly, must be stair-stair tunnel, right? It's got to be stair-stair tunnel. Tunnel is on Goliante's lair. This tunnel is of orc make and has the usual branching passages. One goes right up into the dungeons of the tower, but orcs don't use it much because of Ungoliante. Yeah, right, why would you? Ungoliante has made a hole and a trap in the middle of the floor of the main path. Gollum's plan was to get Frodo into the trap. He hoped to get Ring and leave the rest to Ungoliant. Plan failed because Ungoliant was suspicious of him. He had come nosing up as far as the tunnel the day before, and she had put a web on the near west side of the hole. Right, that was the unexpected one that triggered Gollum into thinking he was in trouble. When Frodo held up the file, she was daunted for a moment and retreated to her lair. But when the hobbits issued from tunnel, she came out by side paths and crept round them. File prevents F and S falling into the hole, but a horrible stench comes out of it. Gollum disappears, and they fear he has fallen in the hole, but they do not go back. A. They see tower with a light on cliffs at head of pass, and B. While they are wondering about this and suspect betrayal, the attack is made. Ungoliant going for Frodo, while Gollum grapples Sam from behind. Ungoliant specially wants the star glass. Frodo had hidden it again when he came out of tunnel. Right. So there we go, Yana. We see uh, th- her desire for it. Right. He's thinking, OK, this is what I'm Ungo- What would Ungoliant do? Right. She'd eat the file. Right. Clearly. Um, but notice that's not her first reaction. She kind of works herself up to that. But her first reaction when the file comes out is to retreat. She runs away. Right. And she retreats down into her lair, which is not the tunnel itself. Right. But which is off the tunnel. Um, and we get this idea. So this is very similar um, to uh, this is very similar to uh, the final construction. The major difference here uh, as far as the, the physical uh, thing is the trap, the, the, the hole in the floor, right? And I really like the, the doubt, the uncertainty, right? Gollum vanishes. Did he fall down the hole? Right? There's this question of like, uh, uh, has Gollum betrayed us, or has he fallen to his death? <laughs> right? Should we be trying to save Gollum, or has he betrayed us? Uh, I think that that uncertainty uh, is really is really kind of interesting. And Nancy, great observation. Nancy Fosberg is noticing um, the use of the word daunted again. Let me find it there. When Frodo held up the file, she was daunted. So Frodo daunts Ungoliant. And you remember, uh, and, and Nancy, I assume you're remembering all that daunting that was going on back in the Taming of Smeagol chapter, right? Remember how what an important word uh, daunt was when we were looking at that chapter. Um, so, uh, so yeah, okay, that's very interesting. Um, uh, so, yeah, so as we see those, you know, sort of the betrayal, which he was promising not to do, coming to pass, and we see now. But it's again Frodo doing the daunting, right? Except not this time with the power of the ring, this time with the power of the file of Galadriel, right? Um, So a different daunting uh, and in a different context um, 
but yeah, that is uh, that is a really neat connection, Nancy. Um, yeah. Okay. So we have. Uh, do we? Okay. Here's the visual aid. Um, so here's the sketch that Tolkien made. So notice a few things about this. So here's the tunnel, right? And we got these random side passages which enable Gollum to like peel off and go. So here's the hole. Right, here's the hole there in the middle of the tunnel. And so this is labeled, you can just see in the pencil there, this is labeled Ungoliante's Lair. Right? So this is her lair. I don't know what this like cord is or little tunnel. I mean this is the main tunnel. I guess this is the hole that descends down. I don't get this part. I don't understand what this is. Another side passage to her lair? Um I don't really know. This is the road to the tunnel, to the tower, rather. This is the orc road, um, the shortcut to the tower. And then this, uh, this is the, the, the pass, right? So you can see the, 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 the lines there show the cliffs coming down and the, and the pathway coming up. And this, by the way, um, you may remember from towards the later end of the chapter, the descriptions of how you have the fork in the path and they're not sure whether to go left or right. And by the light of the file, they can see that the left passage is obviously no good. It's becomes immediately becomes very narrow and twists off to the left. Whereas the right hand passage continues to go straight though a little bit more narrow, right as they go. And so you can see that that's how he's still thinking of this same sketch as he had, uh, um, as he had conceived it all the way through. Um, yeah. No, I don't think the squiggly thing can be the hole, because this is the hole in the tunnel right there. Like, that dot is the hole in the tunnel. So this has to be, like, the trap, right, that they tumbled down in. So they they tumbled down, and it's labeled. There it is, labeled trap, right? That's his writing there, trap. So they tumble down into the trap, and then this, like, feeds right into her den, into her lair, right? So then she comes out and gobbles them, Right down here, I guess Gollum's plan is to what? Like, jump in and try to get the ring before she gets at him, right? Is his plan? I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, not really, uh, not really sure. Um, but anyhow, um, I think this is uh, uh, it's it's really fun to, to and remember we get the side passages opening up right on right and left as they come in and then there's like the big one and I th- which is the which is the the what is in the first version the whole right in the published text it's just another it's it's just another entrance that's the entrance to uh, to Shelob's lair right in the published text that they pass by. Um, okay, so having decided. Definitely stair stair tunnel. Having worked out some of the details of the lair here, he then goes on. Uh, Continuous drafting is found for the revised narrative, version 2, and the story as told in the two towers was very largely achieved already in the draft, as far as the events in the tunnel, the climbs up the straight and the winding stair, the hobbits rest beside the path, their talk of the need to find water leading to the conversation about tales, written down ab initio in a form closely similar to that in the two towers, the realization that Gollum had disappeared, his return, finding them asleep, with the description of his interior debate, 
looking back up towards the pass and shaking his head, his appearance as of an old weary hobbit who had lived beyond his time and lost all his friends and kin, a starved old thing sad and pitiable, and Sam's unhappy mistaking of his gesture towards Frodo, where the chapter The Stairs of Kirith ends. A few passages in The Two Towers are lacking in the draft, but they are not of importance to the narrative, and in any case, they appear in the fair copy manuscript. So, all the stuff we were missing, almost everything we were missing. So as soon as he figures out the sequence, as soon as he irons out these details, which were clearly getting in his way, right? Once he had everything laid out right, now everything comes. And and really everything, right? Not only uh, the, the details, you know, the parts of the story that are derivative directly of the geography or the, the topography, right, that he's decided on, the stair-stair tunnel thing, the, uh, the logistics of the tunnel. Not only does that stuff all come clear, but everything else, right? The conversation about tales and, uh, and you know, the famous conversation between Frodo and Sam on the stairs of Kirathungal, that's not anticipated by them. That just comes, right? It comes as soon as they have once... And, and notice that's a product of the stair-stair tunnel thing. Since they're doing two stairs in a row, they need to take a break, right? And when they take a break, all of a sudden, they're having one of the most memorable conversations in the whole Lord of the Rings, right? And the huge, tragic climax of Gollum's entire character gets added, right? This moment of near repentance and then of tragic misunderstanding that leads Sam himself in his perfectly well-intentioned desire to protect his master to be the one who pushes Gollum uh, over the edge, morally speaking. Um, So again, that to me is such a really fascinating thing, right? Um, It's almost like in kind of slightly smaller scale, Treebeard, right? He's like, Treebeard is a giant, Treebeard is a giant, right? He's a, he's a, uh, he's a, he's a, uh, a, a tree man, right? Um, as soon as he realizes, no, he's not a tree man. He's a tree man, right? Then, boom, it all comes. And we get that same thing here, again, in smaller scale. As soon as he has it clear in his head, then it begins It begins to move. It begins to flow, right? Um, and I think it's, of course, I'm a little disappointed that we get that all just kind of summarized here. Um but again, the reason we get it summarized is that we don't need it in full, right? It's just, it, it, all, it all comes, and that's really interesting. Okay, but, uh, Yana, here's the other point, though, that I wanted to make. We do have Tolkien acknowledging that, you know, what would Ungoliant do? She'd try to eat the file, but it's not simple. It's not that kind. When she sees the file, her reaction is not, finally, dinner, I've been starving over here, right? Thank you for bringing a nice, juicy bunch of light uh, into my tunnel first time in a long time, right? That is not, in fact, her reaction. Sam says, what about that star glass, said Sam. Did not the lady say it would be a light in dark places? And we need some to be sure now. I have not used it, said Frodo, because of Gollum. I think it would have driven him away, and also because it would be so bright. But here we seem to have come to a desperate pass. Slowly he drew his hand from his bosom, uh, his, 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 his own hand in his own bosom this time, um, he drew his hand from his bosom and held aloft the file of Galadriel. 
For a moment it flickered like a star struggling through the mists of earth. Then, as fear left them, it began to burn into a dazzling, brilliant silver light, as if Arendel himself had come down from the sunset paths with the last Silmaril upon his brow. The darkness receded from it, and it shone as a globe of space enclosed with utter blackness. But before them, within the radius of its light, were two openings. Now their doubt was resolved, for the one to the left turned quickly away, while the one to the right went straight on, only a little narrower than the tunnel behind. At that moment some prescience of malice or of some evil regard made them both turn. Their hearts stood still. There was a shrill whistling cry of Gollum. Not far behind, by the noisome opening, perhaps, were eyes, two great clusters of eyes. Whether they shone of their own light, or whether the radiance of the star glass was reflected in their thousand facets, right, and then we move on, it becomes much more like the Two Towers passage at that point. Uh, First of all, uh, one quick note on the return of the shrill whistling cry, right, um... Gollum shouting something like Sikamongolian, right, in spider language, presumably. Um, The interesting thing to me about that return, and it would seem to me, I mean, is this the reason? I don't know if it's the reason, but it would seem consistent anyway with Tolkien's removal of the trapdoor, not the, it's not a trapdoor, but the hole in the floor, right? Um, And their doubt as to whether or not Gollum fell into the hole in the floor. Um, in the published text, there is no doubt, right? There is no, like, do you think Gollum's okay? Right? No. Like, as soon as he vanishes, Sam is like, and he's betrayed us, right? This is exactly where he meant to bring us. Um, and I, that seems to me the function of this change, right? Even this impulse to bring in the shrill whistling cry um, to prove we don't want any real doubt. This is Gollum's betrayal, right? So the idea that they're going to actually hear Gollum crying out, yeah, uh, but they see the spider after Gollum sicks the spider on them, right? But, uh, I mean, I do think in the end, in this context, it certainly lessens Ungoliant's appearance uh, to have uh, to have her set on them like a, you know, like as if Gollum was letting her off the leash or something, right? That uh, uh, isn't very Ungoliant-like. Um, and, uh, and yes, Stephen, I think this is supposed to recall the emergence of the eyes in the dark in Mirkwood when they lit their campfires, right? Um, I think it is supposed to recall that, but just be much, much worse and much, much uh, more horrifying. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, what was the other thing I want? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... Um, Arendel himself had come down from the sunset paths with the last Silmaril upon his brow. So... If light is, in general, tasty to Ungoliant, why is she daunted by the file? Even in that first version, she was daunted by the file, right? And now we get more detail here. Um, Anybody remember? Anybody remember from a few books ago why... This particular description is the thing which, more than anything else, totally convinces me that he is not recycling the name of Ungoliant here, right? Uh, In my mind, this passage completely proves that this is the Ungoliant. Um, 
Yeah, Arthur, she and Arendo have a history, right? Absolutely. Um, sadly, a never written in prose history, right? Um, but yeah, uh, in the uh, it would Arendel kills Ungoliant. Arendel, one of he has many adventures, right? In those times when he's sailing around before he goes on his great and final journey uh, into the West, he goes sails about and has many, many adventures. And this is why the tale of Ungoliant, or the tale of Ungoliant, the tale of of Arendel was supposed to be like almost as long as the entire rest of the Book of Lost Tales all put together, right? And Tolkien never wrote almost any of it. Um, but we saw, uh, and we even just looked back and thinking of the tree men, because um, they were included too, uh, saw the list of adventures that Arendel was going to have. And one of his adventures was to go into the extreme south of the world and find Ungoliant and kill her. Now, I keep saying that, I keep carefully saying that Tolkien never wrote that in prose because he did write it in verse, right? Um and if you've heard me do my errantry talk with this, is, you'll remember we talked about this, of course, during the Treason of Isengard and we got to the errantry chapter. That sort of middle version, there are three basic versions. Uh, there's more than three drafts, but there's three basic versions of the errantry poem. There's the first version where it's the funny little diminutive elfin guy who, you know, marries a butterfly and fights with the Dumbledores and the dragonflies, right? Um, uh, and and uh, and then it shifts, and it becomes a, a mortal man who is taken by the elves and made their champion, and he's sent off to fight Ungoliant, right? He goes into Evernight and destroy, and, and finds Ungoliant, who is weaving webs uh, to uh, try to eat the sun and moon. And he cuts through her webs, and he kills Ungoliant, and then he sails, sails off... Uh, uh, into uh, uh, into Evernoon, and uh, and has this vision of lightning and flame and uh, kind of amazing stuff, and then he comes back and his face is all aglow and he can't go home, right? The end. Um, this is that's the moment when the merry messenger from the Errantry poem becomes Arendel, right? Um. And then, but it's still not really placed historically within um, within Middle Earth, right? It's still kind of extracted from that, uh, or abstracted from that, I guess I should say. And then uh, he makes the final change, and, and has it become the story of Arendel and his journey within the Silmarillion, um, uh, the, the, the full sort of historical setting of the Silmarillion. And when it does, he doesn't kill Ungoliant anymore because now the focus is all on the westward journey um, with the Silmaril on his brow and everything. Um, so once, one, we do have that one poetic account of uh, a dude who uh, is obviously Arendel uh, going and killing Ungoliant, but it's not even identified as Arendel, and uh, it's uh, it's... But but it's still pretty. Anyway, that's the closest we ever get, right? Um, so 
If it looks like Arendel himself with the Silmaril on his brow has descended in the tunnel, she's going to think twice, right? And it's funny because, of course, like, why should she? She never actually did meet Arendel, right? But it's almost like Ungoliant, you know, she's read those plot outlines and she knows this can't be good, right? So she's going to withdraw until she's really sure that this is not, in fact, uh, Arendel himself. Now, I'm kind of joking about that, but the point is they are invested, like the the light from the file of Galadriel invests them um, with this elvish stature, right? Um you know, was saying before that obviously one of the potential downsides of having this literally be ungoliant is that it seems so disproportionate. How on earth uh, could Sam Gamgee, awesome though he be, um, uh, how could he possibly slay, you know, one of the great, uh, uh, you know, monsters, the, possibly the greatest single uh, uh, horror in the history of, of Arda, uh, again, Sam Gamgee is pretty cool, but it doesn't seem up to that. And yet we, uh, we see that when the moment comes, they Frodo and Sam are invested with power as if they are Arendel themselves. Right. So when we see this kind of juxtaposition of the mighty Arendel, um, with the Silmaril on his brow, um, you know, we see that image superimposed onto the image of the two terrified hobbits holding up the, the file of Galadriel. It begins to make more sense, right? It begins to, to sort of raise them to the point where we can see their conflict with Ungoliant here that is now just beginning is part of that. Like, this is the final version of that story. And at the end of the day, by the way, I think that's still what comes. Um, you know, when you read that, when we read those outlines uh, in the book of lost tales about how Arendel killed Ungoliant, I mean, I'm pretty sure I said at the time, as I've often thought, like, Oh man, I really wish we'd gotten that. I really would want to read Tolkien's story of uh, Arendel fighting Ungoliant, right? That would be awesome. Well, we do get it. Sam and Sheila, that's it, right? That's, that's, that's actually it. Um, and we can see that this was, this was originally, it's not just that Sam was going to, like, try to fill the shoes of Arendel the Great, but that he was, in f- that, that he was, in fact, going to, uh, uh, um, going to perform what, um, uh, was going to perform what, you know, he would like Arendel bequeathed to him, uh, the task that he never got around to doing. Right. Um, and that's, uh, that's really neat. And Brianna, I am so looking forward to the Arendel story, uh, in, uh, the film film project. Just think of the cool stuff we can do. Brianna. We'll have a whole season of the adventures of Arendel. I can't wait. Uh, we'll get there. Um, but um, anyhow, yeah, <laughs> Takako says Ungoliant's reaction to seeing the file seems to be, oh, no, not again. Oh, not again. Right. Exactly. Ungoliant and the bowl of petunias. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, exactly. It's like Ungoliant has read the history of Middle Earth. And so she knows what exactly what this means. Um, 
Okay, but of course you'll notice, as Christopher Tolkien points out, that although this scene is kind of awesome, at the end of the day, the thing which is leading them to pull out the file is not, at first, the confrontation with Ungoliant. It's they just can't see, which way they come to the forking in, in the path and they don't know which way to go. So they use it as a flashlight, essentially, right? You know, they pull it out. It's like their pocket torch so that they can see, where, oh, it's the right hand tunnel that goes. And then they turn around and she's right there, right? So we immediately get to the daunting of Ungoliant, um, but that's not what, le- so he's going to, he's going to, he's going to develop that. Right. Um, and again, this is another thing that I think is really interesting. And one of the really cool things about seeing this chapter take form piece by piece by piece, right. As we do, um, is that we can see Tolkien is not just like overtaken by these fits of inspiration. Right. And, and, you know, the whole Treebeard chapter just rolls out of his pen, um, that happens, but that's not the only way things happen, right? We also see him, you know, sort of applying, doing it the hard way, right? You know, having to apply his own art, his own, his own, uh, you know, sort of criticism of, of, of his own work in trying to figure out, like, what is the best effect, right? How can I make this scene best as he goes back and revises it and revises it uh, and makes it better and better? And I think this is a great example, Right. Um, The fact that the file is going to come out and the effect that it's going to have and the confrontation with Ungoliant, uh, they they're there. Right. But they keep coming more and more clearly into focus and the story becomes more and more uh, gripping, more and more awesome uh, as he goes through and revises. So it's really neat to see uh, his, you know, his sense of that, his sort of taste involved there. Okay. The creature backs away. They retreat up the tunnel. Frodo holds glass aloft and something each time the eyes halt. Then, filled with a sudden resolve, he drew sting. It sparkled, and calling to Sam, he strode back towards the eyes. They turned, retreated, and disappeared. They, the eyes, presumably. Uh, Sam, full of admiration. Now let's run for it, he said. They ran and suddenly crashed into grayness, which rebounded and turned them back. Sam cannot break the threads. Frodo gives him sting. And Sam hews while Frodo stands guard. So again, first concept, we've got to divide sting and the uh, file between them, right? Because one of them needs to be holding up the file and the other one needs to have his back to the spider hacking at the, uh, at the webs with sting. The web gives way. They rush out and find web was over the mouth of the tunnel. They are in the last gully and the horn pass something before them. That's the top, said Sam, and we've come out of it. Our luck's in still. On we go and take the last bit while the luck lasts. Notice how much like Bilbo he sounds, right? Sam doesn't talk much about luck like that uh, in the published text. Nothing, but whereas that, that sounds very, very Bilbo-ish, doesn't it? Frodo ran forward, placing his star glass in his bosom. No thought for anything but escape. Sam follows with sting drawn, constantly turning to watch the mouth of the tunnel, thinking too little of the craft of Ungoliant. She had many exits from her lair. Frodo was gaining on him. He tried to run, and then some way ahead he saw issuing out of a shadow in the wall of the ravine the most monstrous and loathsome shape, beyond the imagination of his worst dreams." Okay, um, so 
again, we have the logistics of uh, them emerging, right? And we see him, uh, we see uh, Tolkien refining these things uh, as we go. Notice how the basic, uh, he, he gets a sense of, what what's important like for instance the sam full of admiration right that's uh and and notice how this is one of those examples that i was mentioning at the beginning of class prose where outline is starting to break out right sam full of admiration that's obviously an outline statement that's not real prose right um stars and glory right we don't get sam's line there but then he immediately does shift into dialogue so the the relevant piece of di- the dialogue expressing the admiration doesn't come, right? We don't get that immediately. We get a placeholder for that. And now we get the, the sort of the simpler, like, pro- plot-driving dialogue there. Um, yeah, so, uh, so that's kind of cool to see. All right. Um, here's a, uh, a quick example of him going back, uh, taking a detail that he had just decided when he was kind of shifting into outline mode there uh, and then expanding it, right, and making it really cool. That will not help us, said Frodo. This is, of course, his cursing of Gollum. Come, I will hold up the light while my strength lasts. Take my sword. It is an elven blade. See what it may do. Give me yours. Sam obeyed and took Sting in his hand, a thrill running through his hand as he grasped its fair hilt, the sword of his master, of Bilbo, the sword that Elrond had declared to come out of the great wars before the dark years, when the walls of Gondolin still stood. Turning, he made a great sweeping stroke, and then sprang back to avoid the lashing threads. Blue-edged, glinting in the radiance of the star, the elven blade shore through the netted ropes. In three swift blows, the web was shattered and the trap was broken. The air of the mountains flowed in like a river. "'It's clear!' Sam cried. "'It's clear! I can see the night light in the sky!' "'No!' Here's Frodo, er, uh, Tolkien, interrupting himself. "'No! Make Sam hold light, and so Frodo goes out first, and so as he has the light, Shelob attacks Frodo. Sam sweeps up Frodo's sword from ground. He drops the file in struggle with Gollum. Cut out the staffs!' Okay, uh, here's again him. Uh, him apparently worried. This is the moment where he seems to be worried about um, uh, uh, how many things they have in their hands, right? Um, so he's going to ditch the staves entirely because the staves are not nearly so important uh, as the swords and the files. But of course, the staves do come in really handy because it enables. Uh, it gives Sam something to beat Gollum off with without killing him, right? I mean, if you've always got as a sword or the file of Galadriel, right, uh, how's he going to drive Gollum away? Um, anyhow, okay. But, of course, this is also how he's got to drop the file in his struggle with Gollum because if, he's, if he does have it, Gollum isn't even going to be able to approach him, right? Remember, Frodo was worried that uh, uh, Gollum would be driven off if he even knew they had it, right? He's been hiding it from him. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay. Um, so just, again, a couple things. Notice that the fact that Sam got Sting, you know, like the mechanics of that was worked out before, but notice how he takes that mechanical 
contrivance, right? Uh, what needs to happen in order to get them out of this situation. And now he's really thinking of the, you know, it, I love to see Tolkien now turning himself to think like, okay, fine. So Sam gets sting, but wait a second, Sam now has sting for the first, he's wielding sting for the first time. What, what would Sam think? How would that affect Sam? Right. And I love the description. On the one hand, his reaction is like Bilbo's because Sam, even more than Bilbo was in The Hobbit, is sensitive to these stories of old times. Right. We know how Sam loves the stories of the elves. So, of course, he's going to be thinking about the great wars before the dark years when the walls of Gondolin still stood. It's going to really hit Sam that he, in wielding this sword, especially wielding this sword against the uh, the webs of a giant spider is recapitulating the actions of the heroes of old, right? That, that, that That's going to be very meaningful for Sam. But I love the detail that that's not the first thing he thinks of, right? Even Sam doesn't think of that first. What he thinks of first, this is the sword of his master. This is the sword of Bilbo, right? I am holding the sword with which Bilbo fought the spiders in Mirkwood, right? I am now, I have been given the sword of my master, that, uh, um, yeah, I, Karita, I agree. Sam full of awe and wonder is one of my favorite things, too. Um, but you notice how he starts with that very kind of homely wonder, right, um, of, uh, uh, of, of uh, Frodo and Bilbo. And then he gets around to Gondolin, right? But again, here in the midst, so he's fleshing out these ideas that he had put forward in the outline. And then as he's doing it, he realizes, no, wait, can it? I've got to change it again, right? This doesn't work. Awesome, but this doesn't work. Um, make Sam hold the light and Frodo use the sword. So let's switch it around. Because he doesn't want Frodo running off down the path with the file still in his breast, right? And notice, uh, Yana, how... We've come around now. Ungoliant is not seeking the file anymore, right? Ungoliant isn't trying to eat it. Her reaction to the file is now not... That's that's her goal that she wants to consume, right? Um, she is f- avoiding the person who has the file, right? She's still afraid of it. Um, and that's really kind of interesting. You know, that's really kind of cool. Uh, and shows how she's diminished, I think, is one of the things that's, that that's supposed to show. Uh, but also, of course, it's also about Sam being awesome and recapitulating Arendel. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Um, no, it's not Sheilib here, Jennifer. This is still ungoliant. Um, we're coming to the point... It's not too long now before Ungoliant is going to become Sheila, but this is still Ungoliant. Um, uh, notice how he the the the, the reference to uh, the White Sheila attacks Frodo there at the end. Uh, we see that's a uh, an outline, and remember the sort of the dating of this, um, not the dating, the sequencing of this. Um, Christopher juxtaposed this from a later draft against this as he was working out these previous ideas. But this is not the place that Christopher flagged as the as the first time that Shelob's name is used. Um, so when he's... Uh, so yeah, so he's changing his plans here. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So 
Yeah, so here now I'm getting confused. As he shifts to his outline, he's projecting Shelob, which means this has to be after the Shelob passage. We must be getting close to the Shelob passage. Well, maybe, maybe not. Let's see. Well, in any case, Jennifer, I better get moving if we're going to get to any of the passages. Let's keep going. When Sam cannot hew Webb, Frodo says, I do not feel the eyes any longer, for the moment their regard has moved. You take the light. Do not be afraid. Hold it up. I will see what the elven sword may do. So notice what's happening here. Now we have, okay, we've, he's changed, he interrupted himself and changed the mechanics, right? Now we're going to have Sam holding the light and Frodo holding the sword. So what's that going to be like, right? So now instead of having Sam ho- grabbing the hilt of Sting and being like, oh, this is amazing, right? Instead of that, we get the moment where Frodo hands him the light, right? Um, uh, and and it's interesting that he, in doing this, he doesn't do the same kind of Sam reacting in awe and wonder moment, right? Instead, we get Frodo, the emphasis on Frodo giving him the light, right? You take the light. Do not be afraid. Hold it up, right? Uh, the confidence uh, of Frodo instructing Sam is, I think, really neat here. And then Frodo hews the webs asunder, and so the trap as it was planned was frustrated. For though once long ago he, Gollum, had seen it, the nature of that sword he did not know, and the file of Galadriel, and of the file of Galadriel he had never heard. They rush out. Sam comes behind, and suddenly they are aware, A, of Red Window, B, of the blue light of Sting. Orcs, said Sam, a dosing, uh, and... Uh, wait, no, closing, right, sorry, yeah, and closing his hand about the file, hid it in, uh, beneath his cloak again. A sudden madness on Frodo, he sees the red light, um, he sees the red light, the red cleft, the goal of all his effort before him, no great distance, half a mile, gain it in a rush, run, Sam, he said, the door, the path, for now, and now for it, before any can stay us, Sam tries to keep up, then the spider attacks, and Gollum. Right. Again, notice how once again he is shifting into outlining as he is working these things out and and like piecing together these bits that he has had and figuring out the real sequence in it. And again, how is it connected with Sting and with the light? Sting, you know, Sting and the file are the two most important objects in this whole thing, right? So you've got the two hobbits and the two objects and how they're connected to them and how they're related with them and the roles that they play because it changes the story, right? Having Frodo with the light while Sam slashes the threads is, it's not just, you can't just change the names, right? You, um, you, uh, have to, uh, sort of re-envision the whole story, right? And this, you know, Frodo saying, you know, do not be afraid, hold it up, and then him hewing the webs of the webs asunder and thwarting the thing. Um uh yeah, yeah. Um yeah, good. Um no, Stephen, uh, Sam does not sing songs at the spider uh, because, of course, remember when Bilbo sang his songs at the spider, his goal was uh, to aggravate them, right? This was spider aggravation poetry. Spider aggravation poetry not indicated at this time, right? Uh, whatever they want to do with the spider, uh, spider daunting poetry would be just the thing, but that is an even more obscure 
branch of of uh, of of verse craft than spider aggravation poetry, um, uh, of which there is a much more robust tradition. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Let's keep going. Frodo and Sam backed away, their gaze held by the dreadful stare of those cold eyes, and as they backed, so the eyes came on, unhurried, gloating. Suddenly, both together, as if released simultaneously from the same spell, the hobbits turned and fled blindly up the tunnel. Struck out, the left-hand opening was blocked with some unseen barrier. Wildly, they groped and found the right-hand opening, and again they ran. But as they ran, they looked back and saw, with horror, the eyes come leaping up behind. Then there came a breath of air, cold and thin. The opening, the upper gate, the end of the tunnel. At last, it was just ahead. Desperately, they threw themselves forward and then staggered backwards. The passage was blocked by some unseen barrier, soft, strong, impenetrable. Again, they flung themselves upon it. It yielded a little and then, like taut cords, hurled them back once more. The eyes were nearer now, halted, quietly watching them, gloating, glittering with cruel amusement. The stench of death was like a cloud about them. Stand, said Frodo. It is no use struggling. We're caught. He turned to face the eyes, and as he did so, he drew his sword. Sting flashed out, and about the edges of the sharp elven blade, a blue fire flickered. Sam, sick, desperate, but angry more than all, groped for the hilts of his own short sword, carried so far and to so little purpose all the way from the Barrow Downs. I wish old Bombadil was near, he muttered. Trapped in the end, Gollum, may the curse of Faramir bite him. Darkness was about him and a blackness in his heart, and then suddenly, even in those last moments, before the evil thing made its final spring, he saw a light, a light in the darkness of his mind. And this, of course, is the inspiration to tell Frodo to draw the file of Galadriel out of his bosom, right? Um, so... This, of course, is the change we notice now, of course, and I think it's uh, fun, of course, I'm trying to play on the fact that uh, in this new version of the story, Sam is given the inspiration, but of course, Tolkien has had the inspiration, the the acknowledgement again as he's working these things out, okay, them pulling out the fire of Goadriel just to light to use as a torch in the darkness, right, and then feeling something looking at them and turning around and seeing the eyes, right? That's not that's not enough, right? It does not convey the significance of the situation. It does not convey the hugeness of the will that's behind them, um, the extent to which they're trapped. Um, so we get this change in the scene. Notice the eyes glowing independently of the file, right? The file has not even been drawn, and they can see the eyes in the dark. Uh, and then the will of the spider toying with them, Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Carita, I agree. The word unhurried is unexpe- is an unexpectedly frightening word in this passage. Yes. Um, uh, the gloating, glittering with cruel amusement. Right. Um, I love that, that sentence. Um, so uh and and also another really cool thing that I like 
Sam's impulse, right? As they're trapped, he first has the impulse, I wish old Bombadil was near, right? We get the recollection of the barrow in the Barrow Downs, right? Um, which is kind of interesting because they're not exactly in the same place, but they're in an even worse fix now than they were in the Barrow Downs because old Bombadil is not near. Um, but notice his muttering. Where does his mind go, right? After thinking of Tom Bombadil, he doesn't think of light right away. Trapped in the end. Gollum, may the curse of Faramir bite him, right? His oath of, of uh, you know, his, his cursing, of Gollum, right? His calling down vengeance upon Gollum. The implication is that this is a reflection of the darkness about him. Um, this is the evil will of Shelob working on him. Darkness was about him and a blackness in his heart, right? The despair, the rage, the bitterness, the anger that is consuming him in this moment, this is an extension of, this is an that's the making inward of the outer darkness that they're surrounded by and which first he breaks through, right? By remembering the light, just as he briefly remembered Tom Bombadil just there. Um, and Tony, yes, it is interesting that the barrier is unseen. It's not named uh, a web here. Um, yes, it is her webs of darkness. Remember how in the early drafts, he described that more as if like the, the, he was describing the unlight of the webs. Right. Um, and he doesn't describe that explicitly. The, 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 the very explicit unlight nature of the webs, um, doesn't make it into the published text with nearly the, the fullness that it was given in those early drafts. But Tony, again, as we can see so often happening, having worked through that and what it would look like, we see him kind of toning that down. That's another major trend that we can see as he goes through laborious revision after revision uh, of all of these passages. Um, yeah, uh, it's um, it's... It's definitely a trend uh, to see him become increasingly subtle, less less overt, less blatant. Like he, as he's outlining and and first going through uh, the big, you know, he spells everything out, the big major f uh, 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 forms, and then he and then he tones it back. Okay, Galadriel, he cried, Elbereth. This is Sam over Frodo's body later on, not in the tunnel. Now come, you filthy thing. Now at last we know what holds this path, but we are going on. Come on, let's settle before we go. As if his wrath and courage set its potency in motion, the glass blazed like a torch, like a flash not of lightning, but of some searing star, cleaving the dark air with intolerable radiance, white and terrible. No such light of heaven had ever burned in her face before. Because, you know, A. Rendell didn't make it, right? Uh, a. Rendell never kept his appointment earlier on. The account of Ungoliant's retreat is largely illegible, but phrases can be read. She seemed to crumple like a vast bag. Her legs sagged, and slowly, painfully, she backed from the light away in the, in the opening in the wall. Gathering her strength, she turned, and with a last jump and a foul but already pitiable something, she slipped into the hole. The declaration that whatever might have been the fate of Ungoliant thereafter, this tale does not tell, appears in the draft. Okay, so once again, Ungoliant's end, indeterminate. Again, notice it's still very explicitly uh, Ungoliant here. I'm wondering, 
if it was maybe a typo in the early slide or if there's, I'm not sure about the explanation of why Sheila was used before, but like I said, I'm pretty sure we're still in Ungoliant territory here. Um, that concept hasn't uh, come in, but Ariel, yeah, that was my same reaction too. Ariel's like, Ungoliant is pitiable. Yeah. That's the really interesting thing, right? Uh, so notice the terrible wound that Ungoliant receives, the thing that drives her away, the thing, and, and, in the published text, it's the light of the file that drives her away as well. Um, you know, that that kind of burns in through her stabbed-out eye socket and fills her whole head with fire. Um, but we don't get this same emphasis. Notice the physical impact of the light of the file on Ungoliant. She seemed to crumple like a vast bag. Uh, and she's... Her legs are sagging. Uh, she's, yeah, she's pitiable, right? She is suffering and shrinking and crumpling in the light, right? So she, the, the unlight of Ungoliant met with the light of the file of Galadriel, with the light of the Silmaril uh, that has been, uh, uh, you know, captured within this file by Galadriel, the uh, light that is hallowed by Elbereth and uh, and this file, of course, made up by Galadriel um, and inspired by the will of Sam just completely destroys, right? This is the fight right here. This is where Ungoliant loses. Uh, it is the light that undoes her and there's irony here, right? Um... Uh, there's irony here because she's the consumer of light. But now when this light, when this, what you would think would be, you know, a, a, a choice feast, right, descends into her very lair uh, and it routes her, right? It almost destroys her. Um, and that's kind of amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, and Jennifer, yeah, she's too weak even to eat light anymore. Um, and that's kind of pitiable, right? But it's not, but I think it's not just that. It's um, the excess of light here, right? I, this is a tribute to, I think she's still capable of eating light. Um, again, we did, remember, we did get that reference to her wanting to eat the file earlier on, right? That's still kind of on the table, but she she can't do it, right? Um, the light of the Silmaril, um, blessed by Elbereth, uh, 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 you know, sort of concentrated by Galadriel, inspired by the will of Sam. It's too much, right? This is too much of a meal for her. Um, yeah, Tony, it's just like a predator having its prey fight back, and not Sam, the light itself, right? Um, yeah, yeah, she's that which she had thought... Uh, to consume and uh, make a part of herself, uh, to swell her again with surfeiting on the light, now instead crushes her, right? And deflates her like a bag. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of incredible, actually. At last, with a great... And we get to come to the choices of Master Samwise. At last, with a great effort, he stood up and turned away, and seeing nothing but a gray mist, stumbled forwards towards the pass now straight ahead. 
but still his master drew him. Sam's mind was not at peace, not really made up. He was acting as best he could, as best he could reason, but against his whole nature. He hadn't gone far when he looked back and through his tears saw the little dark patch in the ravine where all his life had fallen in ruin. Again he turned and went on, and now he was come almost to the, to the V, i.e. the cleft. So the very gate of parting. Now he must look back for the very last time. He did so. No, I can't do it, he said. I can't. I'd go to the Dark Tower to find him, but I can't go and leave him. I can't finish this tale. It's for other folk. My chapter's ended. He began to stumble back. And then suddenly, to his wrath and horror, he thought he saw a slinking thing creep out of the shadow and go up to Frodo and start pawing him. Anger obliterating all other thoughts blazed up again. Gollum, after his precious, thinks his plot has worked after all. The dirty... He began to run silently. There wasn't more than twenty yards to cover. He got his sword out. Gollum! He ground his teeth. But suddenly Gollum paused and looked round, not at Sam, and with all his speed, bolted diving back towards the wall and to the same opening out of which Ungoliant had come. Notice again, this is another really clear example of what I was talking about just a minute ago. Um... He was acting as best he could reason, but against his whole nature, right? There's Tolkien spelling out explicitly, like working out this idea in his head, right? Um, he's not going to say anything nearly that flat in the final passage, right? Um, he's going to show us that instead of telling us that. But we can see him working it out. You know, it comes out much more explicitly as he's trying to, as he's trying to work through this. And I love the fact that Sam's vocabulary is to, he's still thinking of the conversation from the stairs of Kirathungal, right? He's still thinking of that, that book with red and black letters that might perhaps someday contain his and his master's story. But it's now clear. Now notice how, by tying into that here, notice how in this original version, Tolkien is going back to that, right? Remember the conversation that Sam and Frodo were having. They don't know what you know, Sam wondering what kind of story this is, happy ending or sad ending, right? And now he knows the answer. This is a sad ending story, right? And there's Frodo dead, and his whole life has fallen in ruin, even if he completes the quest, even if he takes the ring and gets to Mount Doom. This is a sad ending story, right? And that's the chapter, the last chapter, the chapter of despair after everything has already been lost and it barely meaning anything to him whether he completes the quest or not. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then he turns back and he turns back for vengeance, right, against Gollum as Gollum comes out to paw at him. And notice how that, too, recapitulates that moment earlier on, right? Recalls that moment from the stairs of Kirithungal, where Sam had originally made the mistake, right? But now he's making no mistake. Or, in another way of thinking of it, the what his own suspicion led him to believe about Gollum is now the truth, right? He was not pawing at Master before, now he is pawing at Master, 
right? And in part as a consequence of Sam's misunderstanding. So I really actually kind of love the way that this is tying back explicitly uh, to that scene. I think that's really interesting and really powerful. Okay. And then once again, outlines breaking out. Then suddenly the orcs from the tower saw Frodo, and while Sam still hesitated, they swept past him with a howl and rushed forward. Sting must be sheathed. Note to self. One thing the ring did not confer was courage, rather the reverse, at any rate on Sam. He did not now rush in or make a hill of bodies round his master. There were about three dozen of them, all, of them in all, and they were talking fast and excitedly. Sam hesitated. If he drew Sting, they'd see that. They wouldn't... something. Orcs never did. But thirty-six, they... read they'd... see where he was. No, above wouldn't... no. Above won't do. He must see orcs from a greater distance and follow them. The cleft must be no great distance. One hundred yards from Frodo's body, and that twenty to thirty yards from tunnel. Cut out Gollum. Okay, so again, here's... here's... Tolkien once again interrupting his prose, right? Um, we see it first begin to get more and more outlining, and but as he begins to project forward, now he he's like, okay, hang on, wait, no, 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 no. Um, the 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 physical position between Sam and the orcs has to be different. Let's not have the golem pawing at master, uh, and uh, and let's uh, let's let's clarify the relationship between Sam and the orcs. Okay, okay. Now, so now Sam is following, as he had said, and he overhears the orc conversation. Sam follows and hears conversation as they go through tunnel. Orcs discuss Frodo. Special vigilance ordered. What is it? Leader B something Zaglun says orders are for messages or messengers to go to Morgul and direct to Lugburz. They groan. Talk of Shelob and the worm equals Gollum. Big things are on. Only preliminary strokes. News. Osgiliath taken and ford. Army has also left North Gate. Other crossing, away up north somewhere, and into the north part of the horse boy's land. No opposition there. We'll be at the mouths of Anduin in a week, and at the Gulf of Loon before the summer's out, and then nowhere to escape. How we'll make em sweat. We haven't begun yet. Big stuff coming. Big stick if you don't hurry. Prisoner is to be stripped naked. Teeth and nails? No. Is he half-elf and man? There's a fair blend of folly and mischief. Quick and better. Quick. Okay, and again, I love how... Notice how it's like coming and going, right? You know, we we're, he's moved into full outline here, um, and yet... We can see the snatches. You can see these placeholders, not of events, but of pieces of dialogue, right? Like teeth and nails, no, right? And we know, of course, what uh, piece of dialogue that's going to that's going to come to. Um, how will make them sweat? By the way, who's M there? The Gondorians, presumably, but I think also the elves. Um, they're going to be at the Gulf of Loon before the summer's out, right? I think we can see here the orcs desiring to cut off the retreat of the elves so that they can't sail away anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, 
Let's see what else uh, was. Oh, the yeah, the Shelob here. It is in the Orcs talk that Shelob first appears, and that's not the one, right? But um, but this is where finally the shift is going to is going to occur. Um, and so it's interesting to me that Ungoliant becomes Shelob. He decides that the great spider should not be Ungoliant herself, but the last child of Ungoliant, right? Um, so he decides that that should happen not because of Sam, right? It's not like, well, maybe this is a bit of a tall order for Sam Gamgee. That's not what dissuades him. What dissuades him is thinking through the relationship between the orcs and Shelob, or in Ungoliant, it seems. Um, but, um, yeah, because it's the, or- Shelob is originally the nickname of the orcs, uh, uh, that the orcs put on, um, put on Ungoliant, right? They call her Shelob with a hyphen, right? Um, she hyphen lob, um, which just means she spider. Lob means spider. Um, so Shelob is a good nickname, a good orcish nickname for Ungoliant. Ungoliante is a little too sophisticated a name for, for orcs. They're just going to call her Shelob, right? She spider. And that quickly becomes her name. First invented by the orcs as a nickname for Ungoliant, but then, uh, then shifts around. Um, now, is the a uh, couple people are commenting on the description half elf? Is he half elf and man? Um, well, they. I think this this means they don't know what he is, right? Um, he has the sort of peace and beauty that is described on his features. He has a, a even to Sam, he looks like he has a kind of elvish beauty. Um, and I love the description that we get when the orcs are like, his face is all pointy and ugly, right? Uh, like an elf. Um, so the the elfin beauty of his face is not uh, uh, seen by them as beauty. It's seen by them as repulsive, but elfish repulsive, right? Uh, and that uh, that's, that's kind of interesting, actually. Note, orcs don't necessarily love ugliness for the sake of ugliness, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony says, how would the orcs know the spider was female? No clue, Tony, but apparently this is known. Um, uh, maybe she lays eggs. That would be an indicator, right? Um, yeah, that would be my immediate guess. I mean, I doubt... You know, it, it, it's it's anatomical, right? You know, I doubt they're, you know, they're like, well, you can tell the difference between a male and female, a giant, enormous spider by the, you know, I mean, I, I don't think, um, you know, they've done careful field studies on this. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Eggs would be my guess. Uh, that are just, you know, Sauron just knows and told them. Uh, but that latter frankly seems more likely but okay uh let's okay yeah so that's what i wanted to talk about moving forward ah sam putting on the ring okay when he came to sam's putting on the ring he wrote the ring with a sudden impulse he drew it out and put it on the weight of it weighed down his hand for a moment he noticed no change and then he seemed to see clearer 
But at this point, he stopped, marked what he had written with an X, and wrote, No, heard clearer, crack of stone, cry of birds, voices, Sheila bubbling wretchedly deep in the rocks, voices in the dungeons of the tower. But all was not dark but hazy, and himself like a black solid rock, and the ring like hot gold. Difficult to believe in his invisibility. The account of Sam's understanding of what the orc said here takes this form. Did the ring give power of tongues, or did it give him comprehension? Uh, or did it give him comprehension of that had been under its power, written above Sauron's servants, so that he heard direct? Certainly the voices seemed close in his ears, and it was very difficult to judge their distance. With a reference to the ring's increasing power in that region, and its not conferring courage on its wearer, this draft ends, followed by an outline of the salient points in what Sam heard. Why such a long delay of orcs to come? Terrified of Shelop. They know another spy is about. Leader says orders are for messengers to go to Morgul and direct to Baradur Lugburs. Orcs groan. Talk of Shelob and the spider's worm, who has been here before. News of war. Okay, uh, so that's the summary of what Sam had heard. This is another one of those moments, again, where Tolkien makes a discovery, but where the discovery is slow and late in coming, right? And it's only when he starts down the wrong path. You know, in some ways, that... Um, the splitting of the path in Shelob's tunnel. You know, we talked about the sticky patch in the in the text and sort of the parallel with Frodo, right? But we can see this kind of working itself out again and again, right? Just as uh, Frodo and Sam come to the forking of the tunnel and they don't know which way to go, um, but as soon as they shine light on it, they realize one half immediately goes off to the side and is clearly not the way, and the other path is the way. And we see Tolkien doing this in his own formation of the narrative again and again, right? Frodo holds the file and gives a sting to Sam. No, 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 that's not the way, right? Sam has to have the file. Frodo has to have sting. And Sam uh, picks sting up off the ground when he's fighting um, when he's fighting with the uh, 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 spider. Um, and then, you know, again, again and again, we see, like, a Gollum. No, no, Gollum's not there, right? That's not the way. Um, no, he has to follow behind the orcs, right? He can't just be staying there as they run past him. Um, and uh, and now, right, he can, he puts on the ring and he sees everything. Remember how he had, like, x-ray vision? He could see straight to the... Um, uh, to the to the servants of the enemy, wherever they were, he could see the spiders down through the rock and everything um, back in that very early draft of this. And then, no, no, that's not the way. That's the left-hand curving way. No, the straight tunnel is actually hearing. It's not his sight. It's his hearing that is um, that is amplified. And once again, he hears as if they're right there in his ear, right? It's not only that he can interpret the things that he hears, he physically hears them differently. Um, uh, yeah, he hears direct, right? Um, the words of the, of, the, um, of the servants of Sauron come straight to his ears, and he understands them. Okay. 
In the darkness of the tunnel, he seemed now more at home, but he could not overcome his weariness. He could see the light of torches a little way ahead, but he could not gain them. Goblins go fast in tunnels, especially those which they have themselves made, and all the many passages in this region of the mountains were their work, even the main tunnel and the great deep pit where Shelob housed. In the dark years they had been made, until Shelob came and made her lair there, and to escape her they had bored new passages, too narrow for her, as she slowly grew. Changed to, too narrow for her growth, that crossed and recrossed the straight way. Right? Um, this is the moment where it's really clear it's not just the name, right? He's shifted to using the name Shelob after the orcs first used it, right? Now it is really clear that the um, now it's really clear that the whole concept of the spider has altered, right? This is not a shrinking spider. This is a growing spider, right? This is not the great Ungoliant who is now diminished to this. This is Shelob who. Like Smaug, when she was still a young and tender little spider, came to this place and since has grown and expanded and become old and strong, strong, strong thief in the shadows, right? Um, same concept as with uh, uh, as with uh, Smaug. And yeah, Tony, uh, uh, goblins go fast in tunnels. That's... That might be a direct quote from The Hobbit, actually. Um, Goblins go fast in tunnels, especially those which they themselves have made. If not a direct quotation, it's a very close paraphrase um, of the end of chapter four of The Hobbit, absolutely. Um, But again, notice that it's not just the growing instead of the shrinking of the spider, um, but also the fact that she has just taken up... um, she becomes not the aborigin this so conceivably right mordor the mountains above mordor become the place that ungoliant fled to right she's been here for ages before the numenorians before sauron before everything right shelob is much later these tunnels existed first her own lair was not you know formed by herself not carved out by herself. Um, she just took up residence in this tunnel which had already been carved. Um, and now they keep boring tunnels, smaller, thinner tunnels, too skinny for the now big spider. Um, uh, so Shelob is no longer the, is, is not now the primeval dweller. This is not, again, the place that Ungoliant fled to after fleeing from the Balrogs. Um, now, this is a place where Shelob has wandered, like Smaug, again, wanders out of his habitat, right? Um, she, of course, presumably spent some time in Mirkwood, father, you know, not fathering, I almost said fathering, mothering all of those spiders, right? Uh, 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 bearing all of those spiders. Um, and then she wandered down to here, eventually. Okay. I'm getting there. I know it's getting late, but I started late, so... Uh, just finish up my last few slides here. Uh, wait, this is the one I just did. Okay. Here's the orcs talking. Yes, and I know them, for I was told them by Lugbur, see... 
Yagul, this is the orders of the other orcs' orders, Yagul from Dushgoy will patrol until he meets your guard, for as far as Ungol top, he will report to you before returning to report to Dushgoy. Your report was nothing very useful. You can take it back to Dushgoy as soon as you like. I will, but I don't like to just yet. I found the spy, and I must know more before I go. The lords of Dushgoy have some secret of quick messages, and they will get the news to Lugbors quicker than anyone you can send direct. I know all that, and I'm not stopping you taking news to them. I know all the messages. They trust me in Lugbors. He knows a good orc when he sees one. This is what happened. Message from from Dushgoy to Lugbors. Watchers uneasy. Fear elvish agent passed up the stair. Guard pass. Message from Lugbors to Ungol. Dushgoy uneasy. Redouble vigilance. Make contact. Send report by Dushgoy and direct. And there you are. Okay, so... The... Uh, d- so, Dushgoy, of course, is the orc word for Minas Morgul, right? So, who it is exactly in Dushgoy who is communicating with Sauron is not stated explicitly. I have to assume that that's the Nazgul, right? That the Nazgul are able to communicate direct with Lugbors. And this is why uh, the other orc, not... Um, what's his... Oh, yeah, it is Yagul, um, uh, Yagul, who will later become Gorbag, um, y- Yagul from Dushgoy, says, send the report with me because it'll get there faster, right? Um, all I've got to do is go down the stairs and then they can get your message straight to Lugbors. If you send somebody running to Lugbors from here, he won't get there before the message can get there from Dushgoy, Right. What exactly is he suggesting? We don't see that worked out in the text, right? Are they communicating by Palantir? Do they have a connection? I mean, the thing that's so conspicuous to me is that this business about the um, the reports from Dushgoy being able to go directly to Lugbors without passing the intervening distance, apparently. It's very interesting to me that come, that, that comes in right after um, the... Uh, uh, the, that comes in right after the business with Sam hearing things direct when he's wearing the ring, right? Um, that kind of awareness of his servants and slaves, that kind of, not just, again, not just interpretation, not just understanding, but transmission even um, to him, seems to be associated with the power of Sauron, right? So does this just speak to the bond that he has with the Nazgul? Um, that through their, the power of their rings, um, you know, inspired by Sauron, um, that partakes of Sauron's own power, that they too, like, that, you know, even without his ring, that they, with their rings, um, they're able to just telepathically communicate um, over that distance, Presumably not over the distance of the entire continent, or else uh, they could have, you know, been in continuous communication from Bree, right? Which presumably they weren't. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so I'm not sure what we're supposed to understand there. I don't think it can be by Palantir, because 
I don't think he's got enough Palantiri. He didn't recover the one from Osgiliath, so I think he only has the one. Sauron only has the one, the Minas Morgul stone. So I don't think that there's one left in Minas Morgul that they can use. Um, so I think that it's, it's again, this sort of direct communication thing, which already, you know, Tolkien has just developed that, right? Just recognized that or realized that as soon as Sam puts on the ring. Okay, and... Sorry, yeah, there we go. Wait, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Last slide. Um, so here's Tolkien projecting the ending of the story, right? Um, he's finally got Carathongle worked out, choices of Master Samwise. Um, notice that he's still in a fix, You'll recall that the very first projection of the Frodo and Sam story faltered at Minas Morgul when they were when Frodo was captured by orcs and Sam was trying to rescue him, and he had Sam come in and rescue him. But how can they get out, right? How can they possibly escape? And he seems to have just painted himself in a corner he didn't know how to get out of, and he dropped it, and he never really came back to it. And guess what? He's done the same thing again. Once again, Frodo has been captured by orcs and hauled off to a tower, not Minas Morgul this time, but a nearby tower. Um, and uh, and it looks like he's in a very similar fix to what he was in before, and he's going to leave this behind for two years. right? Um, he's He doesn't seem to know right away how to get uh, Frodo out of the tower. Um but now here he is thinking about the um he's thinking about the the um the end of the book with the destruction of the ring the exact manner of which is not is not certain all these last bits were written ages ago but no longer fit in detail nor in elevation for the whole thing has become larger and loftier barad-dûr crashes and the forces of gandalf sweep into mordor Frodo and Sam, fighting with the last Nazgul on an island of rocks surrounded by the fire of the erupting Mount Doom, are rescued by Gandalf's eagle, and then the clearing up of loose threads, down even to Bill Fernie's pony, must take place. Uh, Two quick things there. First of all, imagine what you would have said if, in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films... Uh, after the ring was thrown into the fire and the mountain has erupted and Frodo and Sam are on a, uh, are on a, you know, an island of rock in the middle of the lava flow. If one of the Nazgul had swept down, jumped down onto the rock and fought with them until they were rescued by the eagles, right? Think how you would have howled in outrage had Peter Jackson done that, right? But that was Tolkien's first impulse, right? Kind of, kind of crazy, right? It's funny. Jennifer had just finished typing that that sounded very Peter Jackson esque there, uh, fighting the Las Nazgul in the middle of the lava. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, right? Um, but hey, kudos to Peter Jackson for not thinking of that. <laughs> Anyhow, okay. Um, But the second thing here, notice how Tolkien is very concerned about the loose ends. And I love the fact Lynn Lynn Schlesinger was saying this earlier on today, that um, uh, it's just delightful, isn't it, how 
like it's like the first thing on his mind, right? Bill the Pony. We've got to come back to Bill the Pony. That's you know that's it's very high on his list of threads that needs to be tied up here, uh, and uh, I think that's really I think that's really cool. A lot of this work will be done in a final chapter where Sam is found reading out of an enormous book to his children and answering all their questions about what happened to everybody. That will link up with his discourse on the nature of stories in the stairs of Kirith Ungol. But the final scene will be the passage of Bilbo and Elrond and Galadriel through the wood of the Shire on their way to the Grey Havens. Frodo will join them and pass over the sea, linking with the vision he had of a far green country in the house of Tom Bombadil. So ends the Middle Age, and the dominion of men begins, and Aragorn, far away on the throne of Gondor, labors to bring some order and to preserve some memory of old among the welter of men that Sauron has poured into the west. But Elrond is gone, and all the high elves. What happens to the ends I don't yet know. It will probably work out very differently from this plan when it really gets written, as the thing seems to write itself once I get going, as if the truth comes out then, only imperfectly glimpsed in the preliminary sketch. Right. The way that I've been describing it, the way that we've you know been talking about how it just seems to come right at these moments, that's how it feels to Tolkien too, right? That's how he describes it. Um, the thing seems to write itself once I get going. Um, and as if the truth comes out then. I love that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jennifer, he is very, very self-aware. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Kimber, I, it is interesting that he wants to work the frame into the story, um, not isolating it outside. That is, he wants the Red Book uh, to appear in the tale. Right, he wants uh, uh, to uh, to 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 bring you know. So exactly, Kimber, as he uh, is saying here, he's coming back to the stairs of Kirithungol. Right, we can see how as soon as he writes that, he thinks this is one of the coolest conversations in the Lord of the Rings too. Right, um, and is wanting to make that explicit. Um, this idea of the final chapter, instead of having the you know many partings and everything else happening, um, he's just going to have he's going to cut after the conclusion, right? Maybe after the, the crowning of Aragorn um, in, uh, in Gondor. Because remember, Arwen still doesn't exist. There's no Arwen yet, right? Um, there's not been a glimmer of an Arwen anywhere yet. Um, but anyway, he's, he's, we're going we're gonna to return the king, right, where everything's going to be good. Notice it's Gandalf's army. It's not Aragorn's army, right? Uh, anyhow, um, but we're going to return the king. We're gonna get, everything's going to be good. And then... Uh, we're going to cut to the Shire and have Sam reading out of the book and answering the kids' questions about what happened to everybody. That's how we're going to tie everything up. And isn't it just adorable that, once again, he thinks that the entirety of book six is going to be one chapter, right? Okay, so, yeah, we'll get five books, right? Five books of the fifth book. We'll bring it through. You know, we'll get the siege in Gondor. We'll get the battle. We'll get the casting of the ring into the mountain, into Mount Doom. Uh, then one more chapter to round everything up, right? That's all it's going to need. Um, really, really cute. And yeah, no scouring, Jennifer. Um, now that, of course, is going to come out once we get um, once we get to the um, the tying up of loose threads, 
right? Um, there are plenty of loose threads, and he doesn't list them all there. Bill the Pony is the only one that gets mentioned, right? Um, but there are others, too. And one of the things is, you know, what's been happening back in the Shire? What about Sam's vision uh, in the mirror? What about that reference that was made at the end of the Council of Elrond about how Elrond is... Was, there was a reason he wanted to send Merry and Pippin back, right? Um, you know, he had a, a foreboding that something was going to happen in the Shire. Um, those are loose threads that are need, that are going to need to be uh, tied up. So yeah, once he gets to it, those threads are going to become more significant, and so it's not surprising that that last chapter is going to become book six, right? But of course, we've seen that kind of thing happen many times again and again. Um, and yeah, Tony, that is so typically Tolkien. Tony says it's interesting that he links Frodo's dream of his departure to, to Middle Earth after the fact. Um, he says, I wonder what he thought the meaning of that dream was originally. Who knows? But we see that so many times in Tolkien, where it looks like you would think something was put in after the Like, surely, right? First, he imagines. Frodo leaving and going to this far green country, and then he's like, ooh, I'll foreshadow that by going back and putting in a dream that he has to it, right? Except that's not how it happens. It uh, It's rarely how it happens in Tolkien. He starts with a dream, uh, which he doesn't understand the meaning of, or rather which he changes the meaning of, and then he uh, uh, and then he's like, he discovers, oh, this is what it really meant, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's just... That's just, that's classic right there. Absolutely classic. That is what uh, Tolkien's writing process is kind of all about, right? He puts these things in, like, on faith, and then he figures out their meaning uh, as time goes on. So cool. All right. Um, we got through the Kirathungal chapter. We're ready to start the next section of the War of the Ring, which theoretically we were supposed to do this time. But we'll do that next time. Do continue the reading. I'm going to try to do today's reading and then continue forward uh, into uh, I kind of stopped the reading in the middle of a chapter anyway so we'll just we'll do that whole bit um, and uh, we'll see how far we can get uh, next week thanks everybody for joining me uh, and uh, uh, bearing with me as I kept you a little bit long here today uh, but we'll we'll see you guys again next week bye now <laughs>